In these chapters of Matthew 10, 11, and really going into 12, much of what Jesus is doing is to prepare his followers for what to expect. We've seen that especially in chapter 10. And what we see heading into chapters 11 and 12 is Jesus's uh, the experience that he and his followers have in people's response, really um, fulfilling his description of what they should be expecting in people in terms of people's response to him and his gospel message. Chapter 11 begins with Jesus returning to his ministry of proclaiming his kingdom to the crowds. And you can read in verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew focuses the next section here of his gospel on people's responses to Jesus' personal ministry. And mostly what we see here is the king being misunderstood and even rejected in this section. And the section will actually take a turn to where Jesus intentionally decides, according to Matthew's account and how he organizes it, that he is only going to teach the crowds in parables from that point forward because of their rejection. But still, this doesn't deter Jesus from being on gospel mission. We look here this morning at Jesus' gospel mission as setting aside the good for the best. You know, technological developments have lead, are always leading to one thing being replaced by another. You realize the original trains were just carts on steel wheels rolling along steel tracks, and the idea was if you can lay out a nice, solid, smooth track and you have a nice, solid, smooth wheel rolling on it, it's a lot easier than going through ruts or over rocks and things like that. The original trains were actually pulled by horses or mules. They, they would work for, in purposes like within coal mines or even going across the countryside. The first steam locomotive was invented in 1804. And one of the first commercial versions of the locomotive actually lost a race to a horse. And, and so it was, was, they were really downplayed by, by many of uh, those that were considered to be on top of technological advances. In fact, the, the Quarterly Review, a magazine in 1825, made this statement. What can be more absurd than the idea of a locomotive traveling twice as fast as a stagecoach? It's kind of hard to make those adjustments. Measuring engine power in terms of horsepower was actually coined to help compare the locomotive's strength to a team of horses to kind of advance as the locomotive's power would advance. It was kind of informing the public we're up to it's as strong as this many horses. So pretty soon they were like, well, who's got the money to, to, to put 100 horses together, you know, to pull, a, to pull this much freight? Now we have bullet trains that go up to 300 miles per hour and how, however many horsepower that might be. 
We've all lived long enough to see development uh, cause certain stages to come and go. I've got cabinets full of cassette tapes and VHS tapes and, and, and also uh, CDs and DVDs and that, that, that they're not even played anymore because now we stream our music and we stream our, our movies We've seen NFL plays go from being uh, discerned from the sidelines to being called from a sky booth, high overhead with a, uh, being called into a headset, into a speaker in the quarterback's helmet. You know, I hope we don't get to the day where an AI computer just sends the play into implants in the, in the player's brains. I, I think I'll be out by that time. That's uh, a little too far for me. But certainly a lot of technology develops and have been uh, for the best in the end. And skepticism is often warranted in these days. It's, it all comes down to who is doing the programming. What worldview are they working from? We see today some of the first skepticism of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And it's not going to be the first, but, but what's startling about this is that it's coming from a man that we know is John the Baptist. While we see that it's not uh, petty or, or fearful as we might think, it still represents God setting aside something good, like the ministry of his prophets for the best, the ministry of the Messiah that they had foretold. We see an example of Jesus' ministry not falling in line with a prophet's good ideas in our passage here this morning. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John, this being John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod and he hears about what Jesus is doing. And he sent word by his disciples and said to him, through his disciples, he says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To say that John is a special person in the Bible is putting it very mildly. Okay, he was ordained to be the forerunner of the Messiah, telling others that the king is on the scene. He was ordained for this purpose before he was even born. His father, Zechariah, was told about John's special purpose in Luke 1, where we read in verse 15 through 17, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord, for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist was a godly representative from God. He was a prophet in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. In many ways, he was the prophet. 
that spanned both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Soon we're going to learn a little bit more in our passage of, of why I say John was the prophet. We see this morning that, that John the Baptist wasn't perfect in his knowledge of who Jesus is at this point. He had expectations of the Messiah that were going unmet. And like most Jews, John expected the Messiah to free Israel from their Roman overlords. Here we find John in prison for preaching that people needed to repent. And eventually, King Herod ends up on the receiving of John's fiery focus. And this lands John in jail and to be eventually beheaded, as we'll see in Matthew 16. We'll learn about this more at that point. But something that you might be curious about from John's question, he says, are you the Christ? Okay, you might know this, but when we say Jesus Christ, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It really could be said Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek term for anointed one, Messiah, the one that John was proclaiming was coming, that he was the forerunner for. Are you the Christ? I believe John is asking, are you the Messiah or are you the forerunner to the Christ? He's not like, are you a charlatan or are, are, are you uh, not worth listening to? John, when he was asked by the Pharisees if he was the Christ or if he was Elijah, you might recall he's like, he just goes on to say, I'm not the Christ. And, and there's possibility here that what's going on here is John's not sure, like, am I not the forerunner? Maybe you're the forerunner. The understanding of prophecy was that Elijah, if you will, would, would come before the coming of the Messiah. John may have wondered, is, is Jesus the Christ or is he just the Elijah-like prophet? This is why our passage closes with Jesus stating concerning John, he is Elijah who is to come. This would mean Jesus is also saying, I am the Christ. So if the prophet of all prophets was discouraged and a little confused, we can certainly expect to be at times as well by what God is doing. We can learn from John's puzzlement and we can expect God to follow his perfect plans. I don't know about you, but I'm glad Jesus didn't say, I'm sorry. It, you know, what do I need to do differently here? Is, I'm, I apologize, I'm not meeting your expectations. Is there something that we can do? How do we remedy this? You know, like a customer service agent or something like that. You know, he would, all, he, uh, he would have started with, I understand that you're frustrated, right? You've all heard that. Instead, Jesus points out what he is doing that was to encourage John's disciples to share with John that he is the Messiah. He, is, he cites Isaiah 35. As we, as we sang aptly uh, this morning before the sermon, that foretells some of what the Messiah would do. And he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I was, I was uh, um, uh, like curious about this Greek term. The term is skandalizo. 
Blessed is the one that's not, that in their mind is not scandalized by what I'm doing. It means to be caused, to brought, to downfall. We know that Jesus is the stone of stumbling. The prophets foretold would trip some people up because of who he is and the fact that he would not meet everyone's expectations. In this last statement, we find Jesus sending an encouraging affirmation of his role as Savior. I am going to trip someone, people up, and blessed are those that aren't tripped up by me. He's sending it to the one that, that should recognize the good report from the battlefield. But Jesus recognizes that John is battle-weary and needs to be encouraged that his hope isn't misplaced. The truth of the matter is this. While it's common for God's people to have their own expectations, God's redemptive plan works in his perfect timing for his glory and his people's good. John is discouraged and asks Jesus to clarify his role in God's rescue plan. And while many were confused and offended by Jesus' ministry, those who are not offended but receptive are eternally blessed. You know, our culture worships personal autonomy. Our culture shops for personal gods that, that meet their expectations. That, that fit the little shrines that they have to themselves. I'm waiting for a children's book to come out about a train car. You know, this is what I'm expecting to see eventually. A train car that decides it's done following the others. It would, it would be totally silly because, of course, a train car has no power on its own. Can you imagine in this children's book, the train car decides, I'm done pushing this train along, and de detaches. And, and um, I imagine in the book, because people live in fairyland, it's, it's going to go off into the meadows and the valleys and just find its own way. But we know the reality is, is that if that were to happen, it's just going to sit there until something comes and knocks it off the track or latches on to it. And pulls it in another direction. A train car has to be linked to the power of a locomotive. And connected to the purpose of the other cars. If it's not, it can't just be sitting there on the tracks doing nothing. It's going to get bowled over. Or it's going to get picked up by something else. We were created to bear God's image. We are created to follow God's purpose, to be attached to what he created the world to be about. His good, his glory. He breathed life into us and sin marred that life. And he gives us the opportunity to be regenerated in the power of the Holy Spirit. We were created to follow God's will without attachment to his greater purposes, we are going to be swept off and just follow another train or another trend. A young person might think that they're attaching to that special girl or that special boy. 
The, the, the uh, young person might think that I am just following where the money is. An older person might think, well, what, what can I do but just give my grandkids everything that they ask for? That might be what they are attaching to immediately. But without being attached to what God's purpose is for the world, we're being pulled along by another kingdom. Because we have no power in our own. God is intent on carrying out his goals, even if it may come through pain and suffering. You can read about this in Isaiah 46. Remember the former times of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Jesus doesn't stop and say, John, what can I do differently? He says, John, it's happening. And you're going to be all the more blessed if you stay attached to it. But before you're tempted to think that God doesn't care, hear Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If the Apostle Peter could have counseled John the Baptist from his letter, he would have said, as he writes in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We can be glad that God is at work for the glory of his kingdom. And that we are able to be attached to that in Christ. Because we'll see, as we'll see here, being a part of God's kingdom is the greatest good for us. And that's what we should be concerning us. Am I a part of what God is doing? This is different from appealing, the appealing lies that following Christ means it's going to make, he's going to make life easier for you. Many teachers are selling that, the lie that if you do what God wants, you can get him to do what you want. There's a church in Crawfordsville that's growing great guns at this message. And like God is going to, like God is going to work according to our perfect plans. And it's just about doing just the, the, what exactly you need to do to unlock his power for you. The reality is that through our knowing Christ, through our abiding in Christ, God perfects our plans. And that usually doesn't come without some pivoting that can be painful at times. But it carries eternal value. You know, there's times where I'll have a day planned out and then something happens and, you know, usually it's, you know, a conversation with Kelly that, that you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm fi- kind of find out, okay, this is going on. And, and so we're going to change our schedule a little bit. And I'll just kind of close my eyes. She'll be like, are you okay? And I'll just have to say, I'm pivoting. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of emotionally pivoting here. And, okay, I'm ready. You know, God understands that. But we are the ones who pivot. 
to his perfect plans. Thank God it doesn't work the other way around. So this exchange with John the Baptist's disciples leads Jesus to address the crowd concerning John the Baptist. It says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John's ministry took place in the wilderness area of Judea. And Jesus is asking the crowd, what was your original interest in John anyways? They knew what they were getting. You know, they didn't go out on a nature uh, trip to see, oh, you know, the cattails blowing in the wind. And they say, oh, there, there's a guy out there uh, preaching something. Jesus confirms that John is a prophet, but not just a prophet. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet that other prophets foretold his coming. I mean, think about that. A prophet that other prophets were foretelling hundreds of years from now, there will be a prophet. That makes him the prophet. He's the prophet that would be Elijah. And the understanding is that Elijah did not die. He was, he was carried off into heaven, and, and the idea is that, that was foretold is that someone will come in the spirit of Elijah back again. The most significant, Elijah would come just before the Messiah to prepare the way for him. And we can learn from Jesus' challenging the crowds and expect Jesus to be the only Savior. He's saying, John is the guy that was foretold that would come before the Messiah. And as much as Jesus is saying about John at this point, he's pointing to himself as the Savior. He's pointing to himself as King. The truth is this. John the Baptist is the prophet whose coming was prophesied about. And that means that Jesus is the Christ who is the one that John would introduce. You know, many of you uh, who live in Newmarket, you've been uh, talking with Xfinity, right? Like talking about getting some high-speed internet, right? It's about time. Um, and uh, so I was negotiating something similar at my house, right? Because my, my internet service, it was, it was pretty good. But over the last couple of years, it's kind of like crept up there. It's slowly increased, and so one of the last questions I needed to ask when I was on the phone with uh, a new company was, how long is this price going to last? How long are you going to be giving me this deal? You know, I found out it's 12 months. So, okay, so 12 months from now, i got to watch my bill, watch it start increasing, or maybe some big jump or whatever. God does not have to be asked, how long is Jesus Lord, how long 
is he going to be Savior? Who is going to, when are we going to have to start looking around for somebody else? When are we going to have to, you know, start negotiating a better deal? As we looked at in the men's Bible study yesterday morning, and we were particularly blessed by Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This was written 2,000 years ago, and it still is true because Jesus is still the Christ. He is still the Lord. He is still the one that, that we latch ourselves onto, that we recognize that he took the penalty of our sins on the cross. And his resurrection proves that that payment was received. And we make him our Lord. So Jesus opens his next statement by saying, you can bet your life on what I'm about to say. And that's what it means when he says, truly I say to you. He's saying you can bet your life on what I'm about to tell you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And as I mentioned, if John is Elijah, Jesus is saying, and I am the Messiah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John the Baptist is, is present as the best that mankind has to offer before Jesus' work of redemption. Yet his ministry was for introducing something significantly more important. The kingdom of heaven had come. The king was on the scene. The New Testament ministry of John was an uphill slog calling for repentance from self-righteousness. But John was preparing people to receive King Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And as we see in verse 12, John, the kingdom of heaven had suffered violence. John's imprisonment and the eventual execution are examples of the resistance to his ministry. And the one who can understand the gospel and discern the freedom it proclaims has the opportunity to enter into God's kingdom of heaven, even here on this earth. In verse 13, we read that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John's ministry spanned God's work of the Old Testament into Jesus' ministry of the New Testament. But even still, Jesus' coming was more important as the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, this means that John is in fact Elijah the prophet that would precede the Christ. So we can learn from, from Jesus' confident conclusion here and expect being in Christ to mean 
everything. All of this importance of John's ministry, all of this that of John being the prophet that was prophesied by other prophets. He was the prophet of prophets. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And, and as Jesus says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He goes on to say, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The truth is this, as great as John the Baptist was, his position doesn't compare to being in God's kingdom through Christ. And no violent opposition can change that. Jesus tells us the most significant person who is a part, I'm sorry, the most insignificant person who is a part of the kingdom of God is greater than John because they are in Christ. We are grateful to our veterans who've served at home and abroad to ensure our safety and our freedom. Turn your attention, your thoughts to the, the veterans of the first war, the American Revolutionary War. Those veterans that, 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 that died in that battle as Americans because they were declared Americans at the Declaration of Independence in 1776 where we went from the United Colonies to the United States of America. Those veterans that fought the war of independence but never enjoyed being Americans in freedom. In some ways, that what, that's kind of what John represents. And, and, and we who have the opportunity to be a part of that kingdom that he was the forerunner of. We have the opportunity, we, if we know Christ as our Savior, we are in Christ now. While John the Baptist was a deeply significant figure and a part of the ushering in of Christ's kingdom, the most significant redeemed person in Christ's kingdom is greater. Why? Because we stand in Christ's righteousness. We are in Christ. As Paul celebrates in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Being in Christ means being saved. Being, it means being adopted into a relationship with God as our heavenly father. And we can do that because being in Christ means being clothed in Christ's righteousness. I refer you back to a parable that Jesus teaches about a, a man that, that holds a wedding and as was the custom in that day, if you were very rich and you wanted all your guests to, to look their best for the wedding that you were putting on, I can't remember if he the bride or the groom's father, but either way, if you wanted to, for everybody to look their best, you would provide everyone with clothes to attend the wedding in. Nice, clean clothes. 
And, and the man, uh, let's say the groom's father, looks over the, the wedding banquet and he sees a man that is not in the clothes that were, were provided for him. And he says, why isn't that man wearing the clothes that I provided? Get him out of here. And Jesus tells this parable explaining that if we are to be in God's presence, we must be clothed in Christ's righteousness. We must be in Christ. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. In standing in Christ's righteousness, we are more significant than even the prophet of prophets because of Christ, because of who Christ is. Jesus' interaction with John's disciples and about John's ministry should help you to see the privilege of what it means to be in Christ. And we turn at this time to focus on the price that made this possible. Jesus didn't just come to proclaim that he is the king and that the king has come. Jesus came to carry out his work of redemption so that we could actually have our way paid. He came to secure the redemption of a people that could be in Christ, that could be clothed in his righteousness. Colossians helps us to understand that being in Christ is a change of what kingdom we are a part of. You can read in Colossians 1 verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And in celebrating the Lord's Supper. We remember the fact that this was, was not without great cost. We remember that while we owed a debt for the penalty of our sins, the wages of those sins being death, it was a debt that we could never, ever pay. It took the almighty eternal God-man to pay that debt with his death, with the crushing of his body. Being all-powerful, his death could count for all people. Being eternal, his death could count for all people of all time. He died our death paying the penalty for sins. And rising from the dead, it's like a statement, payment approved. He broke his, he allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his blood to be spilt. I want to invite the, the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in two songs and and we have tables around the sanctuary. We'd encourage you over the course of these songs maybe to go and get the elements and take them back to your seat and meditate or, or go and, and take them at the tables. 
This is a conversation and acknowledgement between you and God. All we ask is that if you partake in communion, it would be because you know Christ as your Savior. We'll read later, you know, a couple years from now in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's bow our heads. Lord, it'd be easy to feel like we speak uh, so flippantly about a salvation that costs so much. But Lord, you want your truth to be commonly known, yet not discarded. You want your truth to be experienced by all. You want your salvation, as as hard as it is to work out in our daily life, to be the undergirding of everything that we do, to be our confidence. We, you want the fact that, that we need grace and help to draw us to your throne. You want us, Lord, to take you at your word. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, for the command to remember it. To, to recall the significance of what you did that is made even more significant because of who you are. We thank you, Lord God, for your entrance into your kingdom that you paved with the sacrifice of your blood and body. Lord, if anyone does not understand what it means to be your child, to be adopted into your kingdom, I pray, Lord God, that today you would make this the day of their salvation. That they would accept what you offer. Adoption. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.